Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. And I put my trust in Jesus for my salvation. It was an important, critical watershed moment in my spiritual journey. But a big part of the story that I told last week was about the fear that motivated that decision at the time. You see, I was at a stage in my life where I had begun to think about God a lot. I was taking God seriously, more seriously than I ever had. And I was learning that God takes disobedience seriously, very seriously. And I knew myself well enough to know that I had been disobedient plenty. I had been disobedient to God's commandments a bunch of times, and so I started to develop this image in my mind of what God must be like and how God must feel about that. At the time, I was developing in my mind and in my heart an image of God as a taskmaster. I imagined God looking at me, reviewing my case, considering my history, examining my track record, and shaking his head in disappointment. I imagined God being disappointed in me. And as I shared the story last week, that feeling of not wanting to disappoint God and in fact wanting to find a way to make God stop being disappointed with me was a big part of the motivating factor behind my decision at age 15, to be baptized as a believer in Jesus. I wanna tell you that in the last 28 years since I was baptized, my mental image of God has drastically changed. But I've also come to realize over these years that I think everyone has their own imagined idea of what God is like. And I wonder what it is for you. I wonder when you imagine God in your mind's eye, what the picture looks like, what the character looks like, what the actions look like, because I truly believe that whatever you imagine God to be like, that sets the tone for your spiritual journey. Now. Maybe your image of God is similar to some of the classic images that painters and sculptors and writers have described and depicted in their work. After all, humans have been chiseling and illustrating and describing their visions of God or the gods for millennia. If you ask the Greeks and the Romans, they imagined a supreme God like the classic images of Zeus and Jupiter, this violent alpha male who wields lightning bolts like weapons anytime his anger is provoked, that could be an image of God that comes to mind for you. The Hindus worship millions of gods and goddesses, but most of the the most prominent ones of them are depicted with elaborate crowns covered in gold and jewels and carrying various symbols of their power and authority. And whether or not you are Hindu, 
you could imagine God as being someone who is just constantly enthroned and enthralled with jewels and gold and all of the symbols and trappings of human riches and honor. Some deists and some Christians have imagined and written about God like a watchmaker who designed and created this intricately complicated world and then wound it up and closed the lid and walked away and left the world to operate on its own without any more divine interference. There have been believers who have argued that must be what God is like. And there are some Christians who have imagined God as an all-powerful, all-controlling being out there somewhere using omnipotence to orchestrate every event in the universe's long history, causing havoc and destruction whenever he sees fit. There are other ideas, of course, but most people who imagine God envision some being who is living on another plane, out there as if in another dimension, outside of our world, and they imagine that God's interaction with the human realm is often violent and punitive and short-tempered. In fact, I want to suggest to you that some of the images of God that I have just shared, some of these images, common images used to depict God, the warrior, disciplinarian, power-hungry, attention-thirsty being, some of these images are the reason for some people's disbelief. Some of the images of God that come to mind for us when we think about what the omnipotent creator could be or should be or might be like, some of those images actually lend themselves towards people saying, I don't want to have any part of that. I've spoken to non-believers who just can't believe in a God, can't bring themselves to trust or care about a God that they see as vengeful and controlling and power-hungry. And so you can see why the answer to this question, what is God like? This is important. This is one of those pivotal questions, one of those forks in the road, one of those decisions that can set the tone for the direction of your spiritual journey. And I want to tell you this morning that the Christian answer to the question, the Christian answer to the question, what is God like? It doesn't start with thunderbolts. And it doesn't start with crown jewels. In fact, I want to tell you this morning that the most accurate presentation of the character of God that the world has ever seen is the sight of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross at Golgotha. And every conversation that we ever have about who God is and what God is like has to start with paying attention to the crucifixion. This morning, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture for you. It's from John chapter 19. It's a passage that contains John's account of the death of Jesus. And most weeks, I put all of these Scriptures up on the screen for you to follow along. Most weeks, we type out, all of the verses so that you can read on the screen as we read aloud. And you're welcome. You are welcome to follow along in your own Bible if that's important to you. But today I'm not going to put the words up on the screen. 
Instead, I'm going to portray or project an image of a, by a 19th century painter, a painting called The Crucifixion by Nikolai Gay. There are thousands of unique paintings of the crucifixion, including many by artists who are more renowned, more famous than Nikolai Gay, but I've chosen this painting because of its realism. This painting doesn't try to be overly gory, but it doesn't soften the impact and the reality of crucifixion either. And so this morning, I'm going to show you this painting. And we're going to dim these lights for a moment. And I'm not showing you this painting for shock value, though I understand it's possible some of you could experience some of that anyway. But here's my ask, my invitation to you is that you would look at this painting intently to turn your attention to this image and study it for yourself as I read from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. We're gonna bring the lights down and I'll show you this picture. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. As I leave this painting on display for just a little longer, I'd like to invite you to imagine for yourself what it was like for Jesus' closest loved ones to stand nearby and watch this scene unfold. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. She was the one who had received the visit from the angel who had predicted her miraculous pregnancy. She remembered the gifts and the visits from people from faraway lands who had come to visit her baby. She remembered the way that he taught the religious leaders, the religious experts at the temple, even though he himself was still just a boy. She saw him turn water into wine. Mary knew that Jesus We don't know any details about the stories of Mary's sister or of Mary, the wife of Clopas. The details of their journeys have been lost to history, but we know Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned in all four Gospels as a follower of Jesus, and she was there. She was there at the foot of the cross nearby watching as he died. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. She is unanimously recognized as a disciple who was devoted to Jesus for the rest of her life, and she knew that Jesus is the Son of God. Of course, John also mentions the presence of the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is almost surely John's reference for himself. John knew Jesus from the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. He witnessed countless miracles and, <coughs> and healings, and he heard Jesus teach. He even said, if I tried to record everything that I saw Jesus do, surely the world wouldn't be able to contain all the books that would be written, he said. John was present at the transfiguration at a moment on a mountaintop with just Jesus and two other disciples and John, and they heard a voice from heaven who identified Jesus as the Son of God and said, listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. John knew, as well as anybody could know, John knew that Jesus was who he said he was. There were probably more disciples who were there to witness the crucifixion, but we know about these. Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, and John. And we know that these three disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And as they watched the crucifixion, as they watched his life slip away, they watched the one that they had each come to recognize as God in the flesh receive a punishment he didn't deserve 
from people who didn't understand or recognize his greatness. They watched as this God in the flesh received a punishment he didn't deserve and accepted it without ever fighting back. After all the miracles that they had witnessed, after everything that they had seen and heard, they must have known that Jesus had the power to resist. They must have known that Jesus had the power to resist those who were nailing him to the cross, but they remembered the words that he had foreseen, that he had foretold about his death. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. John was there in the moment just hours prior. John was there when Jesus was arrested and he witnessed as one of his fellow disciples drew a sword and started to fight back against those authorities. And Jesus said, stop. Put your sword back in its place. For all who live, and draw, who live by and draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think, listen to this question that Jesus asked rhetorically, do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? We used to sing a song about it, didn't we? He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Jesus' disciples who were witnesses to the crucifixion knew that it didn't have to be this way. They knew that it didn't have to happen like that. They, they knew, knew that, that Jesus, Jesus could have avoided this fate. They knew that Jesus could have chosen something different. But what they were only beginning to comprehend, what they were only on the cusp of understanding, and what makes the cross so difficult to comprehend for us is that by choosing to submit to death on the cross, Jesus was proving his solidarity with all of humanity. The story of our faith says that Jesus came and became one of us. He was born into the difficulty and the challenges of human existence. Jesus knew what poverty was like. Jesus knew what fatigue was like for the first time in his eternal history. Jesus knew what fatigue was like. He knew what anxiety felt like. He knew what temptation felt like. But on the cross, Jesus' solidarity with humanity was made complete. He experienced what it means to be abused. He experienced what it feels like to be mistreated. He experienced the effect of being falsely accused and tortured. He experienced what it's like to be painfully, slowly, and intentionally killed. Philippians chapter 2, the first Christians used to sing this song. And Paul would quote it and say, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, even though he could have. Rather, he made himself nothing, 
made himself. Not somebody else made him. He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This crucifixion event, this ugly, gruesome, torturous scene, the crucifixion was the pinnacle of Jesus' incarnation. On the cross, Jesus willingly experienced the full extent of the human experience. On the cross, Jesus could relate to all of the thousands of people who had been crucified before to the two people who were being crucified alongside and to the thousands of people who would be crucified after. On the cross, Jesus could relate to every human who has ever felt hopeless as if God himself had forsaken them. On the cross, Jesus humbled himself in a way that nobody would have ever expected any God to humble himself. Think about it. Nobody imagines Zeus suffering at the hands of humans. Nobody dreams of Allah being subjected to ridicule and violence. Nobody envisions Brahma or Vishnu or Shiva submitting to abuse from lowly humans. And nobody imagined that for Jesus either. None of Jesus' disciples understood that he was intentionally heading to his death. When he set his face toward Jerusalem, he went there knowing what he was about to do. And when it was apparent, when it became apparent to his followers that he was going to be killed, they wanted him to stop it. They were willing to fight for it themselves. Oh, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But instead of calling 10,000 angels, what does our faith say? He died alone for you and for me. And I want to tell you that on the cross, in the clearest way ever, in the clearest way possible, in a way clearer than any picture, any depiction that was ever seen in the stories of the Old Testament, in a way that was clearer than the experience of the tabernacle or the temple, in a clearer way than had ever been seen before on the cross, Jesus was showing the world what God is really like. He was showing us that God, the living God, the one true God, would rather suffer and die than kill his enemies. This is who God really is. This is what God is really like. One Swiss theologian with the best name ever, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Great name, but a serious quote you're about to get. He says, Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, 
Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. You can take a picture of that one. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. He is the image of the invisible God, we believe. Jesus told his disciples, once you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Years after the crucifixion, John would reflect on the Jesus story that he had witnessed, everything he had seen and heard that culminated in this crucifixion. And John would say, for your sake and for mine as a witness, he would say, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John knew after all the reflection and everything he'd seen and heard all of the moments of contemplation that he got to experience in his long life after jesus died john knew that this god understands our plight in a way that no other god ever could last month during the super bowl there was a series of ads that were featured During the commercial breaks, some of you saw the He Gets Us ad campaign. I I saw back and forth argument between Christians on social media talking about the virtues and the problems with that campaign. Primarily, people wished that that money had been spent on something else. I don't have a, a dog in that fight. But I tell you this. The concept that a God out there could get it. That a God out there could relate. That a God out there could understand and would want to understand. That's the part that's so compelling. The idea that there's a God out there who knows what it's like to have people hate him. He gets us. The idea that there's a God out there who knows what it's like to face criticism. He gets us. That there's a God out there who knows what it's like to be homeless, to be a refugee. He gets us. There's a God out there who knows what it's like to grieve, to lose the ones that your heart Loves. There's a God out there who knows what it's like to suffer heartache that doesn't just go away. He gets us. There's a God out there who knows what it is, what it means, and what it feels like to be poor, to wonder about the next meal. There's a God out there who knows what it's like to experience all of the challenges and the difficulties and the fears and the anxieties and the temptations that make up what it is to be human. There's a God out there who knows. He gets us. And his getting us, 
his participation with us, his solidarity with us, went to the greatest length and to the fullest extent. When he hung himself, he allowed himself, he humbled himself, he made himself nothing and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, one of my favorite television series of all time is an old political drama called The West Wing. It, it's too late. I, I'll, I'll spoil it for you. You know, it's been a long time. But there are two characters in that show who work together. One is a, an, an older man who's a recovering alcoholic. And another, a younger man who has recently, in the episode that I'm referring to, has recently experienced a severe trauma. And in the efforts to cope with that trauma, he's found himself turning to drink and finding that his drinking is becoming a problem. And so his older mentor, recognizing all of the signs of that kind of struggle, all of the vulnerability that this young man has, he sets this young man up to visit with a therapist in secret in the White House where they both work. And after coming out of that late night therapist's meeting, this young man finds his mentor waiting for him in the lobby. He says, did you wait for me? He says, yeah, I wanted to see how it went. And they make some jokes together, but then the young man says, you know, the truth is, I didn't cut my hand on a window like I told you I did. He says, I cut my hand on a broken whiskey glass. And then his mentor tells this story. He says, this guy's walking down a street when he falls in a hole. And the walls are so steep he can't get out, and a doctor passes by, and the guy shouts up, Hey, you up there, can you help me out? And the doctor writes a prescription and throws it down in the hole and moves on. And then a priest comes along, and the guy shouts up, Hey, Father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? And the priest writes down a prayer and throws it down in the hole and moves on. And then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, I'm down here in this hole. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. And the first guy says, are you crazy? Now we're both stuck down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Disguised under the disfigurement of the ugly crucifixion and death, Christ on the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. And God is one who has joined us in our whole. God is one who has joined us in our pain. God is one who has joined us in our mess in a way that nobody could fathom a God stooping 
to join us. God is one who has shown solidarity with those who were in the process of rejecting him. Father, forgive them, he said, for they don't know what they're doing. God is one who knows what it's like to feel God forsaken. And God did it for us. And we have to talk about this. We have to keep this in front of ourselves and we have to have this conversation. The reason it's so important for us to talk about this is because what you think was happening at the cross shapes what you think about God. What you think was happening at the cross shapes what you think about God. And if you think that God was doing something to Jesus on the cross then your picture of God will probably include some thunderbolts and some vindictiveness. But if you recognize that when Jesus hung on the cross, that's God. That's where God was. In that whole grand picture, if you ask yourself, where is Jesus, where, where is God in the story of the crucifixion? God is right there, hanging on the cross in solidarity with you and with me. And so we have to talk about this because this is a fork in the road in your spiritual journey. This is a pivotal place in your spiritual journey where you start to decide which version of God you're trying to live for, which version of God you're trying to understand, which version of God you're trying to obey. This is a fork in the road that determines your spiritual future. And here's Jesus saying, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. The story of Jesus is a story of God's identifying, relating, and connecting with us. And it all happened because of God's initiative, because of God's love, and it was God's pleasure 